Dr. Gordon Wenham is a decorated Old Testament scholar, and he's the author of several books and Bible commentaries. He currently serves as an adjunct professor at Trinity College in Bristol. He has a new book out, and it's titled The Psalter Reclaimed, Praying and Praising with the Psalms, published by Crossway. Personally, I've never been a member of a church that made a regular practice of singing from the Psalter, and in fact, I can only remember once ever visiting a church that sang from the Psalter, and perhaps that explains my confusion over how the Psalms are to function in the life of the modern local church. We know that they do, or that they should, from passages like Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, but why and how? So I put Dr. Wenham on the line to talk with him about his new book. He joined us from his home in Bristol, and I started by asking him in general how the Psalms originally functioned for Israel, the corporate people of God. Well, we think originally most of the Psalms were composed for use in temple worship. Um, There are some that perhaps were for more personal devotions and things, but in the Psalms you have plenty of references to the temple, people going up to Jerusalem, people singing, playing musical instruments, offering sacrifice, all the sort of things one might do in the temple. And I think the Psalms give us a great picture of the spirituality of temple worship when it was functioning properly. For a lot of Christians, the spiritual and devotional life seem to get disconnected from God's law in matters of law-keeping and obedience. You argue in the book that the Psalms will not allow us to separate our devotional life from God's explicit laws and obedience. Explain this and its implications for Christians today as we think of, of our devotional life. I don't think this is a question that just applies to the Psalms, if I may say so. Because the, the Bible nowhere splits keeping God's commandments from spirituality. And if one thinks of what Jesus said, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then he gives us various examples of how a Christian ought to live in the spirit of the commandments as well as the, the letter of the commandments. Um, and I think the Old Testament sees it as one of Israel's greatest privileges that God has made known to them his will, and the other nations are more in the dark about what God wants. And the Psalms are just celebrating this. Psalm 105 ends, God brought his people out of Egypt with joy, and his chosen ones with singing, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. And Psalm 119, the longest psalm, of course, is all about the value of keeping the law. He describes the law as a lamp to his feet, i.e. it is his guide in life. The psalmist says its words are sweeter than honey. And perhaps it sums it all up in Psalm 89 where it says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And according to Psalm 1, which sort of introduces all the psalms, the righteous person is a person who meditates on the law day and night. So I feel that spirituality and keeping God's commandments are intimately related in, in the, throughout the Scripture. And in your research, you even see a direct connection between the Ten Commandments and the Psalms. Explain that. Well, we have most uh, of, the, of the Ten Commandments quoted in the Psalms. Um, it's interesting that the one that is emphasized the most, though, is the one about not bearing false witness, and all this, the misuse of the tongue is one of the great sins that uh, the Psalms focus on. On the other hand, the, perhaps the most peculiar thing that I noticed was that the Psalms never seem to insist on you keeping the Sabbath, or 
um, even keeping the festivals. Um, whether it's just assumed, we, I don't know, or whether there's some other more subtle reason. I'm sure the Psalms were written at a time when people believed that keeping the Sabbath was very important. We're in Holy Week as we talk, and uh, in the Gospel accounts we read that Christ recites from the Psalms himself. In the book you write that this may be because, quote, our Lord was just praying his way through the Psalms as he hung on the cross. This would have been a very appropriate thing to do, for so many of the early Psalms are the prayers of a good man suffering and crying to God for help, end quote. Explain the likelihood of this, that when we read Christ quoting the Psalms, what do, you, what do you think he may actually just be reciting several consecutive psalms and not just isolated passages? Well, I must say I can't prove this suggestion. Uh, there are two reasons why I think it's, it's possible, if not probable. First, devout Jews memorized the Bible. They didn't have their own pocket copy of the, of the psalms or any part of the Old Testament. Uh, they used bulky scrolls, which would be very difficult to copy in mass and so people memorized the psalms and kept them in their hearts mind you i don't think many jews could have read learned the whole old testament it's rather a big job um but presumably they learned certain books of the bible and i should have thought the psalms would be one of the most likely that's the most read of all the books in the old testament so i imagine that uh, devout jews many of them would have learned the the Psalter by heart, or large chunks of it anyway. The second reason is that, of course, Jesus quotes two of the Psalms while he's on the cross. The first is Psalm 22, which begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the second that he quotes from just before he dies is Psalm 31, when he says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. I mean, I can't tell whether he was reciting the whole Psalter, but the two, these two quotes come in the right order, and they at least show that he was thinking about the Psalms on the cross. I think it's a, it's a nice idea, but it's one of these ideas that, like many in, in biblical studies, one can't be dogmatic about, only positive about. What is clear is that the Psalms and our Savior are bound up together, um, but in the history of the Church there's been much debate over how to best interpret the Psalms in light of the person of Christ and his finished work. Uh, some throw open the doors to allegorizing everything in the Psalms, others limit Messianic links to passages that are explicitly cited in the New Testament and connected to him. For the life of the average Christian, the non-scholar, is there a common-sense, Christ-centered way of reading the Psalms that honors the text but also reads every Psalm under the light of this messianic age that we live in? And if so, how would you articulate this hermeneutic and this approach to reading the Psalms today? Well, I first of all will say it's a very tricky subject, as there's no agreed answer among commentators and preachers to this question. But I, for my money, I think the best starting point is to try and understand what the Psalms meant to the people who compiled the final collection. They did this a long time after some of the Psalms were composed, in a time when the Jews were ruled by foreigners and had no king of their own. And this would probably be about three or 400 B.C. sort of time. And many, yet many of the Psalms are said to be by David, and others celebrate David's rule, Psalm 72 and 89 in particular. So it's obvious that the editors of the Psalter looked forward to a new David who would fulfill the promises made to the old David. And of course, Christians see Jesus as the fulfillment of these hopes and promises. 
Uh, I see this as the beginning of a Christological reading. To go further than this will take a lot more care and um, time than I have been able to give to it to work out exactly how you could take this method further. But I think to see it wasn't an innovation of the, of the Jew of of the New Testament to see the Psalms Christologically already the Jews perhaps 300 years before Jesus saw the Psalms as predicting the coming of a new new David a new Messiah. So, so would you say it's safe to say that for a Christian reading the Psalms today, they, sh- they should read them with an awareness that these Psalms were collected in light of a messianic hope? Yes, definitely. Very good. I want to uh, transition and talk a little bit more specifically about the role of the Psalms in the life of the local church. And in your book, you talk about speech act theory. Uh, for someone who's never heard of the phrase, explain what speech act theory is. Yes, it's an attempt by modern philosophers to be sensible, I think. Um, it's really the common sense insight that when we speak, we're doing more than just giving information. If my wife says, there's a cold draft coming through that window, I'm supposed to realize that she wants me to do something, perhaps to shut the window. When a man says to his bride, with this ring I be wed, they become married. Similarly, uh, on a more general situation, you know, promises create obligations and expectations. If I say I'll send you a book tomorrow, I put myself under an obligation to, to send it, and you will be being, have the expectation and hope that I will fulfill what I've promised. That's what's going on when we are sing, singing or praying these prayers to God, the Psalms. We're expressing our love to God and are promising to live in the way he, that he approves. Given that God knows our every word and thought, prayers such as the Psalms are a very powerful speech act, or at least we should take them very seriously. We may forget what we promise. Indeed, we may not really mean what we say to God in prayer. But God knows and God remembers, so praying the Psalms should be done thoughtfully and humbly. Does that, does that clarify the idea of speech act for you? I think that's how it applies to the psalm. It does, yes. I think in the book you talk about the act of reciting the psalms as an act of covenant vow. Unpack this idea of, of reading the psalms together as an act of, of vow. But I think when you're reciting the psalms publicly in a church setting, you, it's, it's, it's comparable take, to taking an oath in court. Because on the one hand you have other human beings listening to you. And on the other hand, you have God listening to you. And so you're under great pressure to actually say what you really mean. Or, or let me put it the other way around, sorry, to, say, to mean what you really say. And if you say the Psalms and don't mean it, you are sort of committing perjury in a sense, and um, God will know that you're being hypocritical. So... Uh, there's a very, it may, this makes the, the teaching quality of the Psalms particularly potent compared with other, you're not just listening to a sermon or listening to a reading from the New Testament, but you're are making remarks to God which are very, which ought to be taken very seriously. 
most listeners of this podcast attend churches that probably don't sing from the Psalter. Uh, many probably attend churches that don't even really practice public reciting of the Psalms even. Uh, make your case for why churches should, at the very least, read the Psalms together in public worship together, and, and what's happening when the local church community reads the Psalms together verbally. Yes, you ask me why should churches use the Psalms. I could give you a lot of reasons. But the first one is that it's been the practice of the church for nearly 2,000 years to use the Psalms in worship. And it was particularly true of the New Testament church. So if you're wanting to get back to New Testament principles, um, you ought to be using the Psalms in worship. Several times Paul tells his churches to sing the Psalms, in particular the churches in Corinth, Ephesus, and Colossae. And I think if you read the book of Revelation, you can see that other churches must have been using the Psalms at all as well because of the allusions and similarities in, between the book of Revelation and the Psalms. I know that this was the universal practice of all Christian churches till quite recent times. Quite recent times, did I say, till about a century ago, I think. If you want to be true to the church, true church practice and New Testament teaching, that's the first reason for using the Psalms. The second is that the Psalms provide a balanced diet of worship. I think too many churches and hymn books provide a, a diet of nearly exclusively happy songs and choruses. And of course, many people come to church sad and worried. That may be what has prompted them to come to church. Perhaps they're worried about money or health or relationships at home or at work. Or they may be worried about the great political issues of our time, such as peace, famine, poverty, and so on. And singing the Psalms allows us to bring these concerns to God. Particularly, this is true because the commonest sort of psalm is not a praise psalm, but a, a lament psalm, a psalm that expresses a complaint to God. You may say, if you come to church feeling happy, you don't want to sing gloomy psalms, but if you're one of the fortunate with no worries of your own, these lament psalms teach you how, to, how the sad and suffering people feel, and they should make us more sympathetic to their situation. So I think that even sing, that singing even the negative psalms can fulfill a real gap in Christian worship and actually serve a very positive function. Do you think it's comparable for a church to recite the psalms together verbally as opposed to singing them musically? Well, I don't see why you shouldn't recite them. It's just as... I think really what one would like the psalms set to really catchy tunes so that you would sing them and sort of memorize them like people memorize pop songs these days. I mean, you get, get in Athanasius, a sort of 4th century Christian writer, sort of assuming that Christians will go out to work singing these psalms and whatnot, and that's really what God would like to achieve. But uh, that's a long way to go, I think. Yes, I agree, and we will leave that as a standing challenge for modern Christian songwriters and musicians today. Uh, Dr. Wenham, speak to the Christian who needs basic encouragement to read the Psalms. What would you say to a Christian who is daunted, maybe even a little bit intimidated by the Psalms themselves? Keep at it. You're gradually less daunted. I mean, I think the most difficult thing is perhaps transposing their ideas into our concerns. You know, perhaps 
there's a lament about how God has allowed his vineyard, Israel, to be destroyed and trampled on by the the foreigners. And you sort of think, well, that's not really very appropriate to me. I, I haven't got a vineyard or anything that's been trampled on by foreigners. But uh, if one sees the, the vineyard as the church and the way that the in certain parts of the world the church is in in a pretty desolate situation, and particularly if you're talking about Western Europe, it's you feel there's a very appropriate uh, prayer there for the church today. I also find this, uh, the lament psalms very potent when I'm praying for the suffering church throughout the world. In uh, so many countries there's persecution of Christians and they can't do anything about it. And one prays these psalms which express sort of desolation and and, God, and pray to God to intervene to solve the problems. I think they are very, very relevant and modern today. It seems like one of the great benefits of reading the Psalms is it enlarges our perspective. It gives us, uh, it gets us outside of ourselves. You talked about this earlier uh, in how the Psalms make us sympathetic with those who are in our churches who are suffering, and it makes us sympathetic of the suffering global church. It seems like the Psalms has the power to force us to think outside of our circumstances and to think in more global terms. Yes, I think, well, it's certainly done that for me. I, I hope it does it for other people as well. That was Dr. Gordon Wenham on the line from his home in Bristol. Dr. Wenham is the author of the new book, The Psalter Reclaimed, Praying and Praising with the Psalms, published by Crossway. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This free episode is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes store or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.